changing the strategy into, you know, you've heard me say before, you know, stop interrupting what people are interested in and try to start becoming what people are interested in. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast, where we reimagine and redefine sales in a digital world. In this new series, we have absolutely scoured the world to bring you only the best of the very best. We will be working with each of the thought leaders to unpack all of their years of experience, their pearls of wisdom and nuggets of gold into bite-sized chunks that will enable you to redefine your sales. Welcome back to the Redefining Sales podcast. This week, we have the absolutely phenomenal Julie Masters back with us once again, but this time with a completely different vibe to our podcast. So Julie and I are going to be in conversation together, having a chat about how you bridge the gap between sales and marketing in order to deliver a better ROI. Now, if you haven't listened to Julie's previous podcast interview with us, please, please, please go check it out because it is absolute gold. Julie specializes in in all things influence and has spent her career decoding what it takes to be influential, to start a movement and to be a voice of authority in your space. And I mean real influence, working with world-leading CEOs and organizations on how do you stand out from the crowd in a really, really, really noisy marketplace. So I thought there is nobody better to sit down and have this conversation with. And the timing is perfect to help you start preparing for the year that's coming ahead, get your planning in place and start bridging that gap and end the divide between sales and marketing. So grab your pad, your pen and tune in. Hello and welcome. This week, I have the lovely Julie Masters with us yet again, CEO of Influence Nation. Julie is one of my favorite people in the world. So I had to have her back again. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for having me again. I brought I brought the earrings. I brought the goods today. You did. I snares for you. I need to up my game. I'm, I'm contributing nothing on the earring front, so I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing a bit of a different vibe this week, and we wanted to just really have a bit of an open conversation around how can we really unlock growth potential right now for organizations. You know, at the time of recording, many of us are in lockdown. Um, there's definitely some challenges for businesses, and most businesses I'm speaking to are in a state of flux because of what's happened. And really, we want to sort of look more at the future. You know, right now, what are some of the things people can be doing to unlock that growth potential? And in particular, we wanted to focus around how do you end the great divide between sales and marketing? Because from my perspective, that is one of the number one things we are seeing right now as an opportunity to drive growth, opportunity to increase ROI, um, and a real competitive advantage. So Julie and I wanted to have a bit of an open chat right now around how you can tap into your growth potential and how you can end that great divide. So I want to start with the lovely Julie around just understanding from your perspective, you're working with CEOs day in, day out, you're working with some amazing organizations globally. What are some of your observations at the moment around those two points, growth potential and around the, what you observe between sales and marketing teams? I think they're the two sides of the, of the same coin. You know, you don't get growth without sales. Um, and you don't get growth without awareness and engagement, which is traditionally the job of, of marketing, right? And I think that one of the things that we've, we've seen traditionally when, when you look at those two roles is the great divide. I love that, I love that you put it that way. You know, it is the great divide. There's a complete lack of alignment. Marketing do their thing. Sales do their thing. And, you know, you get them in a room together and it's kind of like, you know, never the twain shall meet. Was it Mars and Venus coming together? And, you know, sales think that, you know, marketing doesn't understand them. Marketing sales don't understand them and so on and so on it goes. And I think that when you're looking, when you're looking at growth, bringing those two together is probably one of the largest potentials, pieces of potential that organizations have. And the reason for that is because, you know, you drill it down into data. You know, sales have information that marketing needs. Sales understand, they're doing their job correctly, they understand the core questions of that target market. 
they are hearing about the stories firsthand of things that are working, that are that are projects that have gone amazingly, happy clients. You know, they're hearing objections firsthand. They're hearing all this stuff that marketing needs to do its job right. Like the role of marketing is to be regularly contributing in its ideal sense, regularly contributing to the marketplace in useful and engaging ways, telling amazing, captivating stories so that we come and we talk to a salesperson. And so it's that loop between the two that is fundamental to tapping into any kind of growth potential. So I think that divide is massive. And a big part of that, as I said, is is the data piece. And one of the things I'm hearing a lot from organizations at the moment, I think, you know, I would have had at least two or three meetings around this topic over the past two, three weeks, is around the lack of data. You know, marketing saying, marketing at a brand level saying, you know, we just don't have access to, no one's putting anything in. No one's putting anything in the database. No one's putting any data. No one's telling us anything. How do we build a journey, a curated journey for potential customers, a funnel, whatever it looks like, without this data? And, you know, sales going, well, we're just we're out there doing it. We don't have the time to be feeding back information to you for you to, and this is a classic sales and marketing thing, for you to make it look pretty and get it back out of the door. So lessening that gap between the two, and I know we're going to talk about it more today, I think is one of the biggest pieces of potential when it comes to growth that a lot of organisations are facing at the moment. Mm. I agree. I was, it was one of these, the white paper that that you guys put together, I made a note when I was, when I was reading through it, that 28% of salespeople said that marketing was their best source of leads. Now, that's an insanely low number. That's an insanely mm-hmm. low number. You know, marketing should be a source of, of revenue for sales. Like marketing should be feeding opportunities through sales, activating opportunities for them, taking people on a journey. And then sales come in and, and kind of tag team, take their hand and take them the rest of the way. So for only 28% of salespeople to believe that marketing brings any value to the table at all, given that we spend over $50 billion a year on marketing as a a global enterprise. That's insane. That's an insane statistic. What have you, you know, I'm really interested because you did this research. How have you noticed that playing out in the organizations that you're working with? Yeah, I think, so from what we see day in, day out, this divide is very real. The research that we just did that you alluded to, the white paper, um, we absolutely are seeing the same. So statistically speaking, there's only 8% of companies believe they have a strong alignment between their sales and marketing, 8%. And the ones that do have a strong alignment have 209% more opportunity to increase their revenue. So the, the opportunity is so clear. And what we're seeing when we broke down our highest performing campaigns and the common denominator was we got sales and marketing on the same page, singing from the same hymn sheet from day one, not further down the track, and I'll engage sales when it's their point to come into play, but from day one. And so everything we're seeing is so true. Even if I look at personal experiences, even before Sales Redefined, you know, previous places I've worked, I was on the sales side of the fence and I was definitely guilty of that. And, you know, we used to refer to marketing as sales prevention. So there's a cultural thing. Um, Leah, who's joined my team, she'll probably kill me for saying this, but never mind. You know, she's been in organizations where people have referred to marketing as the coloring in department. And so that cultural divide um, and that perception and that lack of alignment, it's very, very, very real. And we see it on a day-to-day basis. And if we cannot get people day one on a campaign onto the same page and working together, we fundamentally know it will impact performance, it will impact conversion, it will impact everything. So absolutely, we are seeing that to be very real. There's a mentor that, that I have, and she talks about campaign thinking, which really changed the way that I look at things. You know, you don't, this is not a marketing campaign and a sales campaign. This is campaign thinking. This is, from, as you said, from day one, what is it that we're about to put out the door? How is that going to support sales? Okay, and then how is sales going to feed back into marketing? And how, like, it, it all goes hand in hand. 
what does that alignment look like that like you've been rubber hits the road on this for I mean goodness me you guys we've been talking for how many years now one way or another and you know I've seen you in the trenches with this stuff what 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 are the key principles what have you learned about what alignment looks like in a practical hands-on sense yeah so I'll give you a really current example because this probably plays it out the best um, recently we were approached by a company and asked to do a marketing cam- campaign for them for a particular sector and said, right, this is what we want to do. This is what we've committed. This is the campaign we're doing. This is the sector we're targeting. Go. This is what we want you to help with. Now, we only do things that are marketing, i.e. sales and marketing. It's integrated sales and marketing, and that's what we do. So the first question we asked before we even started, before we even picked up a pen, was can I talk to your sales team about that? Because I want the the opinion of marketing and I want the opinion of sales. Now we spoke to sales and they said, oh, this sector doesn't really work for us. Um, They don't really value our product in this sector. We have a really, really low win rate. Um, Whatever we do, it's really hard to influence the sale. A lot of it goes down to RFP and it's hard to win. And so sales painted quite a bleak opportunity. Now, we went and looked at our own research to go, what are their customers engaging with? What questions are they asking? What's on their minds? What's some of the other research? And then we looked at it from those three lenses. What did marketing want? What did sales tell us? And what does the research, market research tell us? And what we could see was actually, this isn't the best opportunity for you. It's an absolute marathon. If you want to tackle this industry and it's something that's strategic to you, you can do that, but it's going to be a marathon. It's not going to deliver some of the quick wins. It's not going to deliver the campaign objectives. It's not going to hit the KPIs that you're talking about. And so therefore, it's it's actually, you need to consider whether actually this is going to be where you get the best bang for buck and ROI right now given the targets and the objectives you're trying to meet. So on a really practical level, what does this mean? For me, what it means is before you even pick up a pen, you know, you have actually got the input from both people and and both parties, sorry, from both teams. And that means that when we've done that, A, we know that, you know, there's no guarantees in lead generation. There's no guarantees in campaigns, but we know that we've done the foundational principles to then put our best foot forward because we know actually, okay, we've understood from the sales team, what are the objections you're getting? Where are you winning? Where are you losing? Why are you winning? Why are you losing? And we've understood all of that, which is just invaluable to then, if you choose to go forward with said campaign, we can then integrate that into the campaign. For example, we had a recent one where we got told about a major objection from a sales team. So we knew on that campaign we were building, unless you address that objection, you're never going to win. You're never going to get conversion. You can have the best marketing campaign on the planet, but it's not going to convert and it's not going to produce an ROI, more importantly, unless we've addressed that. And we couldn't have understood that unless we'd had that direct access to the sales team. Not only that, when we then go to execute, because the sales team from day one have been involved, they're bought in. So when we go back to them and go, hey, we've listened to what your customers are saying. We've listened to what you want. We've listened to what you need. We've built it for you. Now it's your turn. Go and execute on it. Go shout about it from the rooftops. Go share it with your customers. Go share it with your prospects. And they are bought in because, again, come back to the statistics, 50% of sales reps don't follow up on marketing leads. 70% of marketing leads never convert. And not only that, 70% of what marketing produce never gets used, never gets touched because sales often go, well, this isn't what I need. So I guess, you know, coming full circle and sort of throwing it back to you, that, that's what I'm seeing. It's that level of virtual team or like you said, campaign team, day one upfront, getting those shared insights. And likewise from marketing because they equally have just as good insights to offer to the table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people support the things they create, right? People support the things they co-create. And so if you've had a voice at that table, you're way more likely to be brought in enough to to share. And that stat was at 70%. 70% of everything marketing creates, the salespeople don't use. I mean, if you took any other function in an organization and said, you know, 70% of everything that they they create isn't usable, 
or is not considered usable, you know, that takes a massive rethink. And and I don't think that it's due to lack of capability and it's certainly not due to lack of intent or lack of passion or lack of expertise. It's just pure lack of communication. It's just pure lack of alignment. And I loved what you said there about um, questions. You know, again, you and I have talked about this a lot, getting obsessive about questions. Um, you know, a quote that I often put up when I when I speak at events is that, you know, an objection is just a question left unanswered. And it's your job to find out what that question was. And so how, how do you go about getting, getting these, like figuring out what these questions are that are either A, that the, the customer has on their journey, or B, causing the objections? Like, how do you start that process? We look at it from a couple lenses. But actually, before I tap into that, I want to address what you just said around the alignment. So it, actually, in our white paper, we found one third of sales and marketing teams are saying that actually, we don't even communicate regularly. We don't even speak regularly. And then nine out of 10, this was a study by LinkedIn, actually nine out of 10 sales and marketing professionals said they didn't have an alignment. So just wanted to sort of tap on that, your alignment point massive. It is massive. Um, so not even regularly talking um, or having meetings. So therefore you can't even get to the questions because actually you're not even speaking to each other. It's sort well, of like yeah, a divorce. That, that lack, of, lack of discovery, right? You know, you, you're not, uh, then what questions are you getting asked? What are your biggest objections? Tell me some of the success stories that you're hearing. What's the language that customers are using when they talk about what we do to you? You know, the, that's all the basic discovery that marketing should be doing from sales. And then going away, putting things together, bringing it back to the table. And as you said, going, right, now it's your job. We've created something that you said would be valuable. You go, come back to us, feedback to us, what's working, what's not working. And having designated points in the journey where you go, okay, you know, these are our potentially lead magnets. And then from a lead magnet, you know, it goes to here and then it gets a phone call and the phone calls followed up with a document or potentially an invite to a webinar. Like figuring out whose job it is on each part of the journey and making targeted conscious decisions as opposed to, you know, again, language I've heard you use, spray and pray and, you know, let the sales team know afterwards that it's happened and if you wouldn't mind following up. You know, and the sales team has no alignment, no attachment, and probably you know wasn't that keen on it in the first place, and so they're not making the phone calls. Mm. So yeah, that that's exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about the the communication between the two. Mm. And I think part of it for me is also the change that we've seen happen, which is now, you know. I learned how to sell in the pubs in London and it was all about the relationship. That's the best ground ever. <laughs> I know, I know. I worked right on, you'll get this, I worked right on South Bank in London. Really? Um, the, I, the IBM office was opposite a pub. It was just beautiful. Um, oh. I, I've got I better pub, like sales pub stories than that. I thought you were actually selling in a pub, like selling no, drinks no. in a pub. Oh, no, if only. No, that would actually be quite good, actually. But I've never given that a go. But no more just that. That was how the perception at the time, that was how business was done. It was all about the relationships, taking someone down the pub and, you know, who could wine and dine the customer the most. Mm. I think what's interesting right now and why I think this conversation is so relevant and so critical is because we've seen a massive shift, partially from COVID and partially from the changing profile of B2B buyers in particular towards digital sales. Now, what we're seeing working is digital first, but not digital only. And the latest research that has come is that APAC B2B decision makers are showing two times more preference for digital interactions over traditional sales interactions. So for me, what that comes to is going, okay, well, we have to have a digital sales strategy. That then begs the question, whose responsibility is that? Is that set? If you take components of that, what the hell is digital sales? And you break it down. Well, and you go, okay. So talk to me, what is digital first? What do you mean when you say yeah. that? Yeah. So, so now, you know, brilliant example, we're all in lockdown. How are we creating sales opportunities in a digital environment? In, to some people, some part of that is social selling. But that's just one piece of the jigsaw. It's just one. You know, in other aspects, it's going, okay, well, we're now all looking at how do we take our events to be virtual? 
we're now all looking at how do we create those unique experiences in a virtual capacity? How do I conduct my sales meetings or my demos or whatever it might be in a virtual capacity? You know, and so it's looking at that whole entire sales process and how do we take it online? And what I think the question that begs when you look at that is historically, if you just take one component and take um, social selling, and that's just one small component, but take that component, historically that was thought of as, well, that's marketing's problem. You know, doing LinkedIn, that's up to marketing. That's not my job. And what we're seeing actually is going, no, 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 no. This is the change. This is the education piece for sales. Because if B2B buyers want to engage digital first, then as sales reps, we need to be re-educated around how we engage in that part of the journey and the process. You know, as you probably know, you know, 53% of people have already made up their mind, their decision, their 53% way through the buying process before they even engage you. And so I think that it's causing a change to then go, well, you can't now think that's sales, that's marketing. You have to think it's marketing because digital sales is the ultimate example by the very nature of it. It's the Mm -hmm. two. And I think it comes back to something that I want to throw over to you, which is you talked about this on the last podcast we had together, which was how we're now consuming content from individuals, not brands. So that also puts sales at the forefront and not just going, that's marketing's problem. Mm. Well, that's the flip from you know, where attention lives now. We, we, we're in a world of human activation of attention. So we, you know, attention used to be activated by brands, you know, brands, branded messages, advertising, you know, everything's about the brand. That was how, that was how you got people's attention. Now it's completely flipped, you know, with the rise of social media, reality TV, you know, Gogglebot, you name it. Now we're in the world of the human being, the world of gripping the human storytelling. And so attention belongs to human beings, not brands. Now, you better have an incredible brand um, behind the human being because once you've got my attention, I'm going to look behind. So before the brand would get my attention, I'd look behind and check out the human beings. Now the human being gets my attention and I look behind and I check out the brand. And the brand had better have trust and legacy and, you know, a proven track record, clear values, etc. But the attention belongs to the human being. There's plenty of fascinating things about that. One is it shines this light, you know, wanted or not wanted. It shines this light on everybody's responsibility to be an influencer for their organisation. Now, when I say wanted or not wanted, you know, not everybody wants that. And I think that we have a we have a bit of a skewed perception of what that means. You know, this word influencer, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've seen the word influencer come to mean something very different than you know what it used to mean. And when I say influencer, I don't mean that, you know, you have now have a responsibility to Instagram your breakfast or, you know, put photos of your kids up online or, you know, hashtag blessed or any of that, unless you want to, unless that's your brand, unless that's a natural expression of who you are in the world and what you want to do. What I'm talking about is regular contribution. It is your responsibility to make a contribution to your target market is your responsibility to try and translate decode the road they're traveling on using your expertise in a regular format now that might be sharing useful articles on linkedin that might be um putting together some some top tips that might be interviewing as you are doing now interviewing somebody else that you've come across that can help you when you understand the journey of your customer intimately finding people who can help decode another part of that journey that you might not be the best person to do that for. Mm. So there's this flip between who is the influencer now. What's fascinating about this is that the average network of a human being, so if you look at the human beings that work within an organisation, the average network of, of those human beings within the organisation is 600 times larger than the network of the organisation itself on average. So we're looking at this huge untapped opportunity. And I think that the stats are showing now that only 2% of people who work within an organization share anything to do with that mm. organization. will say a word about that organization publicly. I mean, just look at that gap. There's a network of, you know, most of the people who work within your organization, sales specifically come from this field, come with this network of people that you need to be talking to who and combined, they can reach 600 times more people than you can talk to by yourself as a brand, as marketing. And yet the disconnect shows that only 2% of them will ever use their network to help you. 
Now that's got to speak to the opportunity, both the challenge and the opportunity here. Yeah, that's so, staggering. It is staggering, isn't it? So you get this 98% opportunity here. It's massive to create the kind of alignment that you're talking about. And if you could just shift that dial 10%, 20%, what would that take? Play it back. What would it look like? How would you do that? Who would you have to keep talking to? How would you have to get sales and marketing aligned? And and going back to that communication piece, you know, the one of the things that I'm a big fan of at the moment is this thing called story trusts. Um, I can't remember if we talked about it on the last podcast, but the idea that at a, at a regular time, monthly, quarterly, at a regular time, sales and marketing come together in what I'm what I'm calling a story trust. Now, the story trust doesn't actually come from me. Story trust comes from Disney. So if you haven't watched the documentary of the making of Frozen 2, please do. You don't have to have a small female child to enjoy it, although I do and I did. Um, (laughs) That was what drove me there. What kept me there was it is one of the most incredible insights into compelling storytelling at scale. And one of the things that they do is they have this thing called story trusts and story trusts are when you're trying to tell a particular story. In this case, they were trying to build Frozen 2. What they do is they do a version of the story and then they get directors from other Disney directors of other successful stories to come in and listen to the story so far and give them feedback. That's the story trust. Now, I believe that there's a version of this that would completely change the way a lot of businesses go about storytelling or go about sales and marketing. And if you can get sales and marketing in the room on a regular occasion and go, okay, right, this is how, as a salesperson, this is how I'm telling the story right now. This is when I'm out there pitching this. This is the version of the story that's getting the most cut through for me. Now, fact one, if there are other salespeople, this never happens just with sales. You know, if there are other salespeople around that table, they're going to they're gonna miss out on a year's worth of trying things that don't work. Mm. Fact two, marketing get an idea of, oh, okay, that's the language. That's the language that's working here. That's the, um, that's the approach that's getting somewhere. Okay, what kind of questions do you ask them? Okay, what kind of answers are you getting there? So having this regular meeting between sales and marketing about how do we tell our story in an engaging, captivating way that compels people to take action. But it mm. takes both, you know, marketing to also come to the table and go, do you know what, when we ran this ad, when we ran this campaign, we got these kind of results. You know, as salespeople, you could either use this because it's brilliant for you to be able to use or is there something in here that you can learn about what's capturing the attention of your target market? Both out there mm. trying to do the same thing. Capture the attention of the same target market. You know, don't tell me that there's not lessons there that can be learnt between the two or something incredible that can be co-created and shared in order to bridge that 98% gap between those who will, you know, go out there and influence on behalf of their companies and those who will not and are currently not doing that. Yeah. And I actually want to tap into that because that's actually really interesting. Like, I, I want to sort of add to that. Sorry, I we unpacked one of our highest performing campaigns recently, and this delivered over a two thousand percent ROI. The campaign went global; it was translated into multiple languages. And when we unpacked, right, how like what were the keys to success for it? A bit like you saying about Disney when they unpack, how do you create a great story? There was next to nothing in terms of paid advertising behind that. There was a little bit but it was minimal and we didn't run it for very long. So it didn't overly drive anything. What drove that 2000% ROI was we got the sales team behind it, sharing it. And so exactly what you said, we enabled the sales team and not just sharing it. And this is what I wanted to add to. People think that sharing it is just going, reshare. And, you know, the LinkedIn algorithm, if you take that as just one platform, I don't, I don't really want to make this social specific, but if you just take that as one example, you know, it's based on the dwell algorithm around, is this interesting enough for me to stop doing what I'm doing and dwell on this and look at it? And if you just reshare, if you don't go, you know what, I am really looking forward to this webinar because I'm really interested that Julie's going to be talking about how to influence blah, blah, blah. And I'm really interested in this, this and this and add your two cents worth. And so when you're sharing your company's information or post or event or whatever it is in whatever platform it is whether it's email verbally whatever 
it's also just adding your two cents worth and your personality to it mm. to sort of go you know what this is this is what i'm excited about and actually a great example of this i've just thought of and this is goes back quite a few years before um this sort of stuff took off when i was at ibm there was a guy in inside sales who just kept on contributing like you talk to and giving his own two cents worth and this quite young into it inside sales guys um guy got asked to speak at an upcoming conference that was coming up because he was an expert and a thought leader in this space IBM wasn't asked to speak he was asked to speak and what he was doing cut through the noise so much that at the time CEO of IBM Ginny Rometty actually spoke to him about what are you doing you know because like we needed to understand and unpack it so I think that going back to your point around only two percent of people sharing it's not just oh yeah I shared it tick it's actually also how do you share it that I think is interesting well, it's. I talk a lot about being a translator. Um, part of your role as a translator is to, is to what I would call the beautiful bottom line, which is you know here is something that is interesting that I think is interesting. Here's the bottom line. Here's why I think it's interesting. What this means for you is you know like one of the most underutilized sentences in communication. You know what this means for you is if you're in this field. You know, this will shed light on this, this, and this. Or I really appreciate it in the angle that they come at here. It's a different angle than I've seen before. So actually translating for your target market the things. We all have access to the same amount of information that you have access to. We all see these things come from our field. The reason we didn't read it is we don't have the time. So if you think it's interesting enough to read, then it's your role as somebody who's stepping up to give us a, a brief translation of that, to add your clear point of view. And I think that with, there's a lot that comes with adding a clear point of view. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is it's vulnerability, right? Like it feels vulnerable to put a voice. It's much easier to push out because I didn't write it. Didn't come from mm-hmm. me. If you disagree, write to the author. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there's this courage that comes with owning a clear point of view. And I was talking to a CEO recently and he said, you know, it's one of the biggest things missing in the business landscape at the moment, which is the courage to own a clear point of view. We are looking to organisations to solve some of the greatest problems of our time. You know, we're not looking to governments to do it anymore. We're looking at organisations to do it. And organisations are, are still very nervous about stepping up into that position, even though that's the position that they are in. And owning a clear point of view, owning, uh, you know, this is what we are for. This is what we, this is what we are against. This is what we stand for. We have a position on this issue because traditionally brands don't have positions because mm. brand advertising is a logo. It doesn't have an opinion. It's not scary. It's very easy to hide behind it. You know, if you don't like the logo, it doesn't mean you don't like me. Now, in order to have a clear point of view, you need to be a human being. You need to have a mm. voice. And in order to share something and have a clear point of view, again, social media has completely changed the, the, the face of attention. You need to be a human being in order to do that. And that is a vulnerable and often quite frightening thing to do for anybody. Yeah. I know plenty of CEOs, it's just oh. as scary to do as anybody else. So I think that there's, if you are going to accept your role as an influencer or, um, or choose your place in the marketplace, as an influencer, then you need to step into the role of translator. And by doing that, you need to be willing to offer a clear point of view. And in doing that, you need to be open to the idea that people may agree or disagree with you Mm. and that someone's going to come back, they might have an opposing point of view. And so, you know, when we talk about communicating with certainty, communicating with certainty isn't being certain. Communicating with certainty is, you know, owning a clear point of view and being open to other points of view. And I think that because, you know, the fear of getting a bit off track here, coming back to what you were just saying about um, what I love there when you said, you know, was it 2000%? Something mm. insane, a 2000% return on ROI, something mental. Um, not only is that just worth saying again, but <laughs> what was important about that for me is you said that did not come by spending a lot. And I'm, big on this you know this is not we don't live in a world of outspending now you can't outspend your way to attention anymore you could when there were four channels on the tv and everybody was watching one of them you could outspend your way to attention you can't now I mean it helps to have a budget it helps to get in front of a lot of people but 
our attention spans are so small that just because you're in front of me means nothing. You, know, you need to be doing exactly what you're doing, which is figuring out how you're going to contribute in such a way that it's going to catch my attention and hold it all the way through. Mm. So I think two things in that. One is the point of the translator, which is what you said. You know, it's not enough to just share. That's not being a translator. That's not stepping up into the influence that you are capable of having. That is kind of like pressing a button and ducking, you know, so, and also it doesn't add anything to you really. adds a lot to the mm. author, but not to you. Your job is to translate it, and that's when people start following you. And that is more powerful than spending mm. a fortune on, on advertising on whatever medium. Mm. Absolutely. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. You know, it almost doesn't make sense how historically some of it has been done where I'm just going to throw a load of advertising budget behind my campaign but I've got this whole sales force, or even if it's a small sales force, it doesn't matter. I've got this, this sales team that I'm not even going to tap into and leverage who have the eyes and ears of the customers. And so that for me is, is the low-hanging fruit. And going back to your point before, you made a really interesting point before around, you know, we talked about asking the sales team questions and how would you answer that and how would you address that? We had a really interesting one recently with a campaign where there were some big objections to why people might not buy. And some real resistance in the market. And we interviewed the sales team to go, when you get asked that question, how do you handle the objection? How do you handle that? And we understood from different salespeople how they how they addressed it. And then we turned that, it, we translated it, let's use your word, into an infographic um, to then put out, but in a customer-friendly language that spoke to them mm. and actually put it into then, okay, cool, this is the best way to address it. Let's translate that into an infographic, but in a customer language that actually resonates with them right now. And that's something, again, that's historically been missed. Yeah. I mean, using language, using the language of your target market, understanding, you know, getting fluent in the language of target market all too often, and especially in the technology space, you know, we use a language that makes sense to us. We use the, you know, our internal language. We, we hide behind technical language. And I do it in my space. You know, it's you hide behind the technical language because, you know, it makes you sound very clever. And not only that, it makes you sound like you know what you're doing. And, you know, not only that, but you, you, can, you can kind of, you can stay removed a little bit. But the most influential people, the most influential brands flip it again and they, they become fluent in the language of their target market and they use what we would call charismatic language. Every target mm. market has charismatic language and charismatic language is the language that they use when they talk about what you do, you know, when they're not with you, basically. Mm. And that language is often emotive language. You know, it's mm. often very simple human language. Yeah. So, and you know, we I think we forget in B two B specifically that we're dealing with human beings. I yeah. think you know we we think that just because we're in the B two B space that the person we're talking to isn't a human being. Mm-hmm. The person we're talking to is you know just going to want to talk about technical jargon the same way that we do. Uh, but no, you're talking about a human being who's got things being bombarded with messages all the time, and you know, getting cut through with them involves often using very charismatic, very simple, very human language. So yeah. finding out what that is 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 massive. And I wanted to, I wanted to pick up on on something that you said there about um about collaboration, about collaborating between the two. One of the things that I think gets missed a lot is actually collaborating with with customers. Mm. Collaborating with, with your customers. Because guess what? You know, we're talking about that gap between who shares, who doesn't share, networks. Your customers have a network of people just like them. They have worked in organizations just like the one they're working in now, in roles probably very similar to the role that they are working in now. They have an entire network of people just like them who respect and listen to them. So the fact that we don't collaborate more with our customers is kind of mind-blowing to me. You know, what if we co-authored a, a, a white paper with one of our customers about best practice, shine a light on the amazing things that they're doing, you know, co-create with something then so that they were proud to share it and then share us amongst their networks. You know, this is who we partnered with to achieve this incredible thing. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it is how we co-create and collaborate between sales and marketing, but there's another piece to that. 
And that, again, takes both sales and marketing because it takes sales talking to marketing about who these people might be. And then marketing, you know, working with sales to make the approach and make it happen. So there are so many different types of collaboration that's possible to start tapping into the networks that are available. It's actually pretty mind-blowing, the networks that are available to organization. And yet what we do the majority of the time is ignore those networks and go off and try and find a whole bunch of new people who have never heard of us to shout at. So, you know, changing the strategy into, you know, you've heard me say before, you know, stop interrupting what people are interested in. And try to start becoming what people are interested in. You know, that's mm-hmm. the kind of the core flip there. Yeah. Um, but I was, I'm really interested. What's your, you know, you've worked on campaigns like that. I'm just doing some sneaky research for myself now. Um, you know, <laughs> <worked> on, <laughs> just because we're live and you can't stop me. Um, <laughs> massive massive campaigns like you said have been translated into 20 languages um what have you found gets the most cut through like if you had to kind of in a nutshell what what gets cut through it's so interesting right now at the moment filmed during lockdown um i think it is what is on someone's critical list not their nice to have list we are actively changing campaigns at the moment. So I'll give you a, a, I'll give you an example about us rather than client for a second. Um, as we started seeing businesses go, oh, geez, lockdown. Oh, my pipeline's just vanished. What are we going to do? Um, my sales teams lost their mojo and all sorts of stuff. We quickly, very quickly, so executing with speed, came out with a webinar around how to keep your sales firing during lockdown. What are some of the go-to strategies? What can you be doing right now? and give sales teams a bit of mojo, but also the actual practical takeaways of what they can be doing. Now, how to keep sales firing during lockdown isn't nice to have, it's critical. So mm-hmm. we've gained quite a bit of traction with that masterclass. We're running it for other organizations. We're doing speaking for various organizations because we changed the conversation from what we were talking about and was what, what was on our marketing agenda for August we threw that out the window along with, you know, thank you, COVID. And we changed it to go, no one right now, when they're homeschooling, when they're doing whatever, when they're busy, whatever you're doing, no one has time for nice to have. Mm. They have time for critical. And go back to that 2000% ROI example, the conversation that we had in that, the messaging around that, what got the attention, what broke through the noise was what was critical for that client at that point in time. It was topical related to COVID. It was what IT teams in particular needed to do right now. And so it couldn't be put on the when I have time list. So for us, that's what's cutting through the noise. What are you seeing in that space? Because you are such a pro on this. Uh, do you know, just to, just to talk to what to what you just said there, I was having this really interesting conversation. It, do you know, it was before lockdown, actually, because I was pregnant. And um, it was with Tiffany, Tiffany Bova, who is the um, who is the chief evangelist for growth, I think, for Salesforce is her official title, but just incredible brain human being, just in a, my title for her. Um, she wrote a book called Growth IQ. And I was interviewing her and it's one of the most popular interviews, popular episodes of my podcast. And one of the things that she said that just really struck me as something that's so simple, so obvious and so underutilized was she said, you know, all we do at Salesforce is focus on problems to be solved. What are the problems to be solved? What are the problems to be solved right now? And what will the problems to be solved be five years from now? And that's exactly what you're doing. You know, you're going, right, what are the problems to be solved right now? That it's the keeping sales pipeline going during lockdown. But then, you know, what what also are the problems to be solved a year from now, five years from now? Because when people have extra bandwidth, they're going to be moving on to those. So let's get ready for that. Or let's earn their attention with critical and then win their trust enough to be able to talk to them about, okay, you know, now we're working on critical. Let's talk about what next year looks like, what five years from now looks like. Mm. So I think that that, that's a really important part, point, a really important point to make is, you know, what are the problems to be solved? 
the you asked me about cutthroat. I mean, for me, it always comes back to storytelling. It always comes back. Mm. You know, it's my background. It's it's my history. It's where a lot of my interest lies. You know how the rules of storytelling have completely shifted. And you know, you look at lockdown. One of the biggest things we've all done in lockdown is binge watch. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm embarrassed to even mention the binge. I've just started Lost. So that should give you that should give you an indication of how committed I am to the binge. Good um, yeah, I've, I'm only on series two, so I might be here till Christmas. But the that kind of if you look if you want to go to the pointy end of storytelling, you want to go to the place where storytelling is going. That's where you need to be looking. You need to be looking at the Netflixes. You need to be looking at the stands. You need to be looking at the Disney. You need to be looking at the people who are at the cutting edge of storytelling and Shonda Rhimes, who um, is the owner and founder of Shondaland, who is behind Bridgerton, some of the most, one of the most compelling storytellers of our time, I believe. Um, If I was going to start a presidential campaign, just for anybody who's listening out there who might want to start a presidential campaign, I'm I'm very open. I'd love to be involved. If I was going to, if I was a presidential candidate, I would be, that's the first phone call I would make. I would be calling Shonda Rhimes and asking me how to work on my campaign because I think that, you know, what they know about storytelling, what they know about human attention, what they know about grippingly human and how you get people's attention to such a way that they would hand over days of their lives to, to knowing more. Um, she she was interviewed on TED, I think it was, recently, and she was talking mm. about characters. And she said, you know, it all comes back to characters. She's like, when anyone tells me a storyline that they think I should consider, she's like, I'm not interested in the storyline. But I want to know what happens to the characters. I want to know about the characters. And then I'll tell you whether I care enough about what happens to the characters to want to know the storyline. And it all comes back to characters. You know, who who are the characters within your storytelling? Is it your chief engineer, your chief innovation officer? Is it your CEO? Is it your clients? Is it the passionate people within your walls? You know, there's a, there's a brilliant video I show it often um, when I'm speaking because I love it so much. It's this video. It's called The Best and the Worst Day of My Career. And it's this woman, she must be in her 50s, late 50s, and she's got nothing. I mean, this goes back to the outspending question, right? It's nothing, nothing behind her at all, just a wall. And it's just her sat on a stool. There's barely even any lighting. And she's just telling this story. And you can tell how much she's feeling it. She's telling this story about she sells life insurance. And she sold life insurance to this young man who unfortunately died in a plane crash and she was invited to the funeral. And she tells a story about the day that she had to go to the funeral. And honestly, I'm, I've got goosebumps now. And I've seen yeah, I'm like, oh, God. Um, and it's only two minutes, two, three minutes long. And it's at the bottom of her email signature, the best and the worst day of my, of my career. And she tells a story about going to the funeral and meeting the wife. And she sees everybody running up to the wife, giving the wife a hug and saying how sorry they are. And she's like, I'm just an insurance agent. I don't even know why I'm here. She doesn't want to see me. She wants to be surrounded by her loved ones. I'm going to go. And then the wife turns around and she sees her. And she comes running over and she gives her this biggest hug. And she says, you are the only one who can help right now. You are the only one who can help. Now that is grippingly human storytelling and that doesn't take money that takes tapping into the stories within your walls that takes pulling out the characters within your walls the people who there and care and have access to these stories and allowing them to tell it in a way that they would feel comfortable sharing it so you know for me it or it will always come back to you know, gripping the human storytelling. And, you know, it starts with questions. What are the core questions? And then how are you answering those questions using the power of storytelling and the power of the characters within your walls or other characters you have access to? So, yeah, that's a very long answer to to a short question, but storytelling for me. No, I love it because that's kind of where I want to sort of take this now is going, you know, I think we're both on the same page that we've seen this same challenge. We've also seen this as a great opportunity and where growth lies. And it's then kind of going, okay, well, how do we then now implement and execute this? I'm all about execution, as you know, how do we execute this? And how do we execute this into our organizations? And from what I'm hearing from you, the sort of starting point is, 
the questions of our audience and really tapping into those. How do we tell those stories and elevate individuals within our organizations, but in a way that they feel comfortable and tell the grippingly human story? And that by default requires, you know, individuals from the organization, from sales, from marketing, from engineering, from wherever that may be, to really play a part. Everyone plays a part. So it's it's 100% playing the part, not the 2% playing the part to make that happen. Is that where you see the future and the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, it, it 100% starts with questions. Yeah, again, you know, I'll say again, the at the heart of every objection is, is just a question unanswered. So start there. You know, one of the most frequent objections that you get, as you do in the campaigns that you run, one of the most frequent objections, and how do you speak to them? What is the, the question at the core of that objection? And then, okay, so now we understand the questions of our target market, the, the top 10 questions, the top 20 questions. You, you know, the questions usually circle around, you know, opportunities, what opportunities do I have, um, challenges, what challenges do I have? Um, process and trends they're usually the four buckets the questions fall into and there's the questions that I have but you know if you really want to step up your influence in the marketplace you know also take that one level further and go what are the questions that my target market are not asking right now that they should be asking what are the trends mm. that they don't know about that they should know about that I, I need them to know about for the sake of themselves their, their business their families you know what are what what are some of the opportunities they have that they don't know that they have yeah. So, you know, you take the ones that you know that you hear all the time and you overlay it with the ones that you know that they don't know yet. And then you yeah. look at that and you go, who's the who are the best people qualified to answer these questions? Or can we answer one question from three or four different angles? And so you find the best people to answer them. It might be sales. It might be someone in your sales team. It might be, as I said, your chief of innovation. It might be a, a customer. And then by answering those questions, you use gripping the human storytelling and so that that is where you end up with these campaigns that people are sharing left right and center and that are driving people along the journey and that's where you can actually harness the the human potential within your organization because we are in the age of human now the age of human beings and so yeah that that process that you've just talked about there i think for me is the pathway to influence you know it's it's what I'm out there talking about and working with organisations on. It's also, you know, what you're out there doing. And those that are doing it are making huge, huge headways right now. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to go a slightly different angle. So same, same, but different. And I think for us what we're seeing is leadership is where it starts. So we know, for example, for us, if we meet an organization where we've got the support of a country manager, a general manager, a CEO, that sort of really senior level leadership has the buy-in to go on this journey and therefore will also get both sales and marketing and wider team all on the bus, all bought in, all on the journey. We know that it's going to work and it's going to be successful. And it's one of the things that we look for of have we got the senior leadership on board and then leading from the front to also pull everyone together into, as you, we, we typically call it like a virtual team, but as you call it, like a campaign team and bringing everyone together, but also then everyone driving in the same direction because sometimes our KPIs are driving us in different directions for different outcomes. And so then also what we tend to find is when we've got that senior leader on board, we can actually set the goal, the team goals of what success looks like with us all pulling in the right direction. We've got the leader pulling from the front, setting the example, jumping on board. They're sharing it. They're talking about it. They're practicing what they preach. So I think for us, it also, a lot of the success that we see starts from the front, from leadership, because that's when we can get the team on board. And so we're not having to outspend, which doesn't work, as you say. We've actually got a really, really bought-in team to get behind it. So for me, I think that's what we see as one of the common denominators for success. It's interesting that you, you talk there about metrics for success because I think that, you know, I was just thinking while you were talking, you know, that's another one of the divisions between sales and marketing is the, you know, marketing metric for, metric for success might be click rates. Uh, it might be likes. It might be shares. It might be opens. 
And sales definition of success is that, you know, I can't feed my family on a, on a, on an open. Yeah. And I'm not getting a bonus on click rates. So you've got two very different um, metrics for success there, which means that, you know, it's going to be very hard to come together because you're just defining what a win looks like very, very differently. So I love that what you said there, that, you know, a part of this bridging the, the great divide is getting clear on a shared version of success. You know, what are the metrics we are we are using to measure this? And and if we know what we're using to measure it, okay, great. How do we drive? How do we drive together towards that common goal? I'm interested though, you know, you said getting marketing, sorry, getting leadership on board to drive. I think for a lot of marketing teams, you know, I talk to a lot of heads of marketing and heads of sales and marketing. There is that feeling that, you know, I would I would love to do this, but I need to get such and such on board. You know, I need to get such and such bought in or I need to, you know, change the way that we look at things. What have you learned along the way in the trenches about actually getting that done, getting leadership on board in order to push it forward? Yeah, I think that what we've found is when we've got a leader who is prepared to almost challenge the status quo and potentially go, okay, well, historically we've worked like that, but actually now we're going to come together. This is the shared goal. This is the shared success. We're all going to jump on board. As I said, leading by example, when you see your leader stepping up and doing what we're asking within the campaign, they're you know sharing it with their network, they're sharing it on LinkedIn, they're doing whatever it might be. It's also then really setting that example to everybody else that this is going to happen but I think it's also then understanding actually we're not trying to um, you know one of the fears people get is oh is my job being removed or is it less important or are you mm-hmm. taken away from this or that and it's all sort of you know conflicting and I think when we can sort of see actually you know what everyone here is just one big team pulling in this same direction we're all driving the bus in the same direction we're collaborating we're not taking your job we're not you know sales isn't treading on marketing's toes marketing isn't treading on sales everyone is actually pulling behind this same direction that's when it works because the egos are set aside the difference in other metrics is set aside it's very clear there is clarity this is the focus this is the goal this is where they're driving the bus and I'm leading from example and here we go. That's where we have absolute success. That takes regular communication as well, though, doesn't it? Like it's it's not a set and forget. It's, you know, you kick it off, you need to be communicating regularly all the way through that campaign. Absolutely. And I think that's the key. You know, as I said, before we even pick up a pen, we've talked with both sales or marketing before you've even set off. So I think if I was to sort of, you know, wrap up with a few I guess thoughts my side around you know how can you actually step forward on this I think it is going do you have weekly or worst case scenario fortnightly you know interlocks corporate word team meetings whatever you want um oh sorry it's like I'm going back into my corporate days now I'll I'll get rid of it team meetings whatever it might be getting together you word for me I kind of had to get out of my corporate speak and then now I'm hanging around corporate so much I'm getting back into it. Um, But like, do you have a time in the diary once a week or once every other week, whatever it might be, to actually get back together um, as sales and marketing and go, right, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. This is working. This isn't working. If it's not working, why is it not working? What can we tweak? What can we do? And it's that communication. Like we said, you know, nine out of 10 sales and marketing professionals are saying they do not have alignment on strategy, process, KPIs, culture. None of it's aligned, which is why for me, it comes back to starting from the top because the leader is able to influence all of those dynamics then have the regular um, get together <laughs> to, to then to then continue to move it forward because this comes into my other high horse thing, which is execution. You know, only 2% of leaders feel confident they can execute their strategy. So it's not for lack of good idea. It's not for lack of good intent. It's not for lack of good strategy. It's actually for lack of execution. And for me, the execution can only come by increasing that the frequency of that communication, that get together, that interlock, whatever the hell you want to call it. I don't care what you call it, but that getting together 
And that's where the beauty will start to come. And that's where the alignment will start to come. That's where the team culture will start to build. That's where we'll start to draw out the alignments and the misalignments to be able to move forward with it. That's that's where I see it going. And even something basic like, you know, do you understand my process? You know, for marketing to sit with sales and go, tell, you know, tell me about your process. What do you do? Like, then what? You send an email and then what? You pick up the phone and then what? And then what? And if it doesn't work out, what, what, then what? You know, how, how can we help you be more compelling in that process by using what we know? And, and conversely, you know, conversely for, for sales to sit with marketing, go, you know, tell me about your process. How do you put these regular communications together? Like where do you come up with, with the information? Just to even just understand each other's process would be massive, I think. Yeah. And this is why we call ourselves, you know, jokingly, and but I think it's going to stick now, marriage counsellors for sales and marketing, because that's what it is. It's repairing the relationship and it's then understanding of each other. Oh, I understand why that's difficult for you when I do this. I oh, OK, I understand it causes havoc for you when I don't put it in the CRM um, yeah, you know, or whatever it is. And then you actually are able to understand the two and then move forward. Mm, yeah, I understand why, you know, you can't do anything with analytics that don't exist because no one's put anything into the system. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's having an understanding of why that's important and what the knock-on effect is if you don't. Mm. And the opportunity, and the opportunity. You know, there's a oh, massive totally. lost. You know, marketing should be able to create leads for salespeople. And there's a massive opportunity lost if they're not able to do that because there isn't the data in the system or the analytics in the system or the email addresses in the system to be able to get that done. A million percent. So, Julie, I want to wrap it up. What are your parting couple, if you had to summarise your top couple things that people should now go look at, what are, you, what are you drawing back to out of everything that we've touched on, which is a lot? That, yeah, we covered, that, was a, that was a lot of ground. That we, we, I know. Uh, I knew I could keep going for another five hours, so I'm conscious now. I'm like, okay, um, what are I you going to pick? For, without sounding like a, a broken record, I think, you know, questions, getting clear on the questions of your target market, the ones they're asking, the ones that they should be asking that they're not. Um, the second one is stepping up into the role of translator. We don't have an information gap. Your target market does not have an information gap. We have a translation gap. We have more information than we could possibly ever know what to do with. What we don't know how to do is translate that into small, easy to digest bites in our language. Mm-hmm. So if you want to step up, if you want to step up the influence of you, if you're yourself, your career, your team, your business, your brand, the first thing you need to do is to decide to step up into that role of translator for your target market and then get forensic about storytelling. What caught your attention? Why? Every time a story captures you, what was it about it? What was it about the voice? What was it about the style? What was it about the format? Was it short, long? You know, start getting like absolutely forensic about this stuff and and learn the art of, of epic storytelling. I think those would be those would be my three. Oh, and the last one would be the story trust to bring it back to why we started this conversation mm. in the first place, which is come together. Like, you know, Mars and Venus, we can do it. And if we do do it, the potential, like some of the stats that we've even just covered in this past hour, the potential is infinite. It's mm. massive. But we can't do it. You can't do it by staying um, divided. Just cannot be done. Mm. How about you? think for me my top one is think smarketing so always thinking smarketing stop thinking sales marketing or that's marketing job that's sales jobs it's think smarketing because I think that automatically bridges the gap I think for me it's also execute now with speed because I think that we're in a world where it's very hard to differentiate it's very hard to get a competitive advantage you see a lot of the same things happening And for me, we are 100% seeing this as a competitive advantage. And the white paper, all the global research we have trawled through, you know, absolutely backs this up that, you know, the companies that adopt this marketing, bringing sales and marketing approach together, they reap the rewards in terms of conversion rates, 
ROI, growth, um, customer satisfaction, like absolutely every metric going that relates to your sales, marketing, customers, it just speaks volume. So I think thinking it's marketing rather than the two is really for me the path forward to just get a mindset change in terms of how we approach this. Um, my broken record is leading from the front from a leadership perspective because that's where we're going to see some of that change come. I think then a bias for focusing on the execution because you can have the great intent, you can have the great marketing strategy, you can have all that, you can tell people to go do it, but it's actually when the rubber hits the road, making sure there's the accountability and the execution with the regular communication that is going to make it fly. So those are sort of probably my sort of three really is the thinks marketing, the leadership piece and lead from the front and have the bias for execution because otherwise it will fall down and everyone will go, this was a terrible idea and it doesn't even work. You know, the biggest thing that we say on our campaigns is getting early momentum by addressing the low hanging fruit because then people are going to get a vote of confidence. They're going to be see, oh, this does work. This is awesome. This is making me successful. This is driving leads for me. This is this is amazing. Mm. Uh, and so the more we can focus on the execution, that's going to get better buy-in than anything else on the planet. Um, so those would probably be my three. Oh, and download your white paper. And download the white paper. I will leave the link to the white paper afterwards. Julie, as ever, I could talk to you for about five hours straight and I have loved, loved, loved doing a very different podcast and having this conversation with you. So thank you so much for joining us. All right. Such a pleasure. It's always such a pleasure to chat to you, hon. Thanks again, Julie. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. Now, before you leave us, if you would like to download our latest white paper on the state of sales and marketing, which unpacks four steps to drive hyper growth in your business, please visit whitepaper.salesredefined.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss a future episode. And finally, we would absolutely love it and appreciate it if you could leave us a review and maybe even share with a friend. We'll see you next time.